0: I am very excited about today's uh, special guest. He is a close friend and former colleague and mentor when I was a junior officer. Um, He is a retired senior CIA field operations officer um, with a great deal of expertise in the Middle East and North Africa. He's one of the agency's um, very first uh, premier Arabists. He now uh, is the um, uh, vice chairman and chief operating officer of Jefferson Waterman uh, International. Um, But most relevant for today's conversation, when he was a junior officer, he was a student at the University of Baghdad. Please welcome Mr. Sam Wyman. Sam, welcome to AFIO Now.
1: Well, thank you, Jim nice to be talking with you again. I recall with great pleasure the times we spent together in the field and playing touch football on the beaches of of Jeddah and uh, knocking around various parts of the Middle East together. I'm honored that you would ask me to share some thoughts with our AFIO colleagues about my experiences in and related to Iraq. Uh, as you know, my association with Iraq began in the Early 60s, when I was working on a master's thesis at Columbia University's School of Middle Eastern Studies, Middle Eastern Institute, and my thesis advisor was a well-known Iraqi political historian by the name of Majid Khadduri, and I had chosen as my topic the revolution of Abdul Karim Qasim, which overthrew the monarchy in 1958, and. When I was at Columbia in 1962 and 63, uh, memories were very fresh of the incidents surrounding and leading up to the Iraqi revolution. And it was, more than I realized at the time, a hot topic. But thereafter, I spent over 30 years of what I described as always complicated and fascinating, sometimes troubling and occasionally ugly years of being associated with Iraq Through various relationships in Washington, while I was studying at Columbia, it became known in any division that I was working on, this paper, and certain any division officers recalling their own experiences in having studied at other universities in the Middle East, and remembering that the overthrow of Qasim, which had only been 1960, I believe, 61, um, was largely fueled by student protests arising out of the University of Baghdad campus, so somebody had the brilliant idea that they ought to have a penetration of student movements, student unions, student organizations to not be caught off guard by a future movement as they had been caught off guard by the overthrow of Qasim. So it was decided that I should be approached to see if I wanted to go to Baghdad to study. And there was really no, there was no structure to do this because nobody had done it before. And so what I did is I walked down and visited the embassy, the Iraqi embassy in Washington, a building which is still located on 18th and R, somewhat decrepit now. And I approached the cultural affairs officer and said, I'd like to go to Iraq to study. And after he picked his teeth up off the floor, we started talking about how to get, I said, is there an application form? Uh, Who do I write to? How do I set this up? Because headquarters didn't have a clue about how to do this. It was really coming out of the cold. And so I, I wrote a series of letters to the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences in Baghdad starting in probably, I don't know, February or March 1963, with a view to getting to Baghdad in the fall of 63. And notwithstanding the roar of silence from Baghdad's non-answers, headquarters nevertheless proceeded to set me up with covert training in the streets of New York, where I was living at the time to prepare me to go to Baghdad and live there as a knock. And as you can appreciate, there's not an awful lot of similarity between the streets of downtown Manhattan and the streets of Baghdad. Notwithstanding, I have to admit, and I'm very proud to admit it, that some of the disciplines that I was taught Using available tools and methodologies deployed on the streets of New York served me well over the next 30 or 40 years, or 30 years anyway, of dealing with operations in various parts of the world. When you have rush passes that are timed according to the ringing of a public telephone booth on the corner of 17th and D Streets or something or other. Which don't exist in Iraq but by George if you didn't make it during your, your covert training exercise you were castigated so you learned to keep the timelines pretty sharp anyway that's a uh, uh, just an observation about the, there's three three months of pretty intensive covert training still no responses from the University of Baghdad I went back to the cultural affairs officer several times and he said don't worry they'll love to have you Why don't you just go? And so now imagine now, if you just think about just appear on the doorstep of the University of Baghdad, these days, it would never happen. Anyhow, uh, we created a a fictitious cover story that I was, shall we say, the son of a well-endowed family that could afford to send me on such flighty uh, activities. And so uh, with a young bride, uh, we showed up in Baghdad in the middle of July, which was hotter than, as you can, as you know, as you know it is. Um, my wife, having heard about the mighty Tig- Tigris River, took a look at our hotel room window in the middle of July and saw this sort of little muddy, dirty trickle of water and started crying. Sort of, what am I doing here? But anyway. Uh, Not to digress, there was very little advanced target study deployed, certainly not by me apart from the historical aspects of it, but very little by, frankly, the station in Baghdad. Because when I arrived at the uh, the College of Arts and Sciences to to sort of announce my presence and get squared away as a student of Arabic and allegedly a researcher for a Ph.D., uh, first comment directed at me by the dean of the school is no you're not here to study Arabic you're here to teach English history and I did a double take and he said we need an English history teacher so your fees and whatnot at the university will be covered by your teaching English history to your fellow students okay so that's the way that started up and um, unfortunately I was put uh, into the what was then known as the the Higher Institute of Languages and Linguistics, which was a subset of the College of Arts, but it was separate from the main student body so that the, the target groups or the groups that were envisioned to be the target of my activities were not on the same campus. It was left to me to devise ways to intermingle with students in campuses that were removed from the campus where I was studying. And that got a little bit tricky because I didn't have a car and uh, public transportation was not the most reliable in terms of being able to sort of flip back and forth, what have you. Nevertheless, um, I scoured the bookstores of Abu Nawaz Street to find English history books that I could refresh my own college studies knowledge and set about setting up a, a two-year program or a program over which lasted for two years while I was studying Arabic and also teaching and trying to absorb as much as I could about Iraqi culture and Iraqi political activities, what have you. I had relatively minimal contact with the Baghdad station uh, because it was doing the kinds of brush contacts and, and dead drops and all that kind of stuff, which were the, your daily, daily fare in downtown Manhattan were not very easy to do in Iraq, although we learned how to do it. But they didn't quite have the operational assets available to me uh, at that time to do it and maintain cover. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, about every three, four months, I would have a a meeting with my inside case officer, Uh, usually by a car pickup that ended up in his home. And that sort of kept me focused on what was going on and Uh, I tried to to generate uh, interesting intel, but there was not a lot of intel available on this particular campus that I was associated with. Notwithstanding, it did afford me an opportunity to learn an enormous amount about the country and its history and its people from the ground up. I was living on the economy. Uh, I became grounded in the politics and the history and the culture, various interactions between families and tribes, uh, historical figures, new figures. Um, And it was a relatively benign operational climate where I was concerned. People did take me as a little bit of an oddity, Um, as I think I've mentioned to you in the past. I still believe I was the first American to attend the University of Baghdad. That reality generated at once a lot of curiosity, but also a certain amount of suspicion, if you will, sort of what's this fellow doing here? Uh, what's the point? Nobody in his right mind comes to the from, from the flesh pots of Europe or the United States to study at Baghdad. Anyhow, I played the role of a sort of a Middle East studies wonk uh, interested in becoming an expert on Iraq and, and Arabic. And so it went. We ended up living in a very small, almost like a caretaker's cottage in the garden of a larger building, a larger apartment, larger home, an edifice known as a mushtamal, which basically was a very, very large living dining room, small kitchen, and a bedroom. But it was inside a walled compound. It was comfortable. We managed. We had our first exposures to coups d'etat, lived through at least two of them. I remember my wife was upstairs in our bedroom looking out over this over, I just happened to be looking out over the street and said, called down to me and said, Sam, there's a tank in the front yard and the tank's gun is focusing on us, which wasn't quite true, but uh, nevertheless, the tank was there because living opposite us across the street, whereas was a, a uh, sort of what's known as a Sarayev village of refugees, displaced persons from the south, who had come up to Baghdad to try to find work, so on, and were viewed by the Ba'ath party as communists, and therefore they were anti-regime. And it didn't take this tank, this particular tank, long before it started point-blank firing into these um, Sarifa huts across the street from our nice, quiet little bungalow. Uh, That left a lasting impression um about sort of life on the streets of of uh otherwise peaceful and comfortable baghdad as i said earlier i had very little contact with the embassy or with the station but i thought when the second coup came out when a lot of street fighting was well there was a lot of street fighting and there were some aerial attacks on buildings that were hosted by one one faction of the bath party were being attacked by another faction of the Bath party and it occurred to me that I probably ought to try to get to the embassy and try to establish at least contact with the consular section. I didn't have a telephone. This was way before the days of cell phones. so I on reflection, now stupidly step, set out on my on foot to get across the street the city of Baghdad to try to get to the embassy, leaving my wife with the cook uh, who was also shared with the owners of our property. I had two interesting experiences in that effort to get across town. I got caught in a, not participant, but I got caught in a firefight. between one faction on one side of the street and another faction, different faction on the other side of the street. And it hunkered down next to a gate. And the gate opened and a man gestured to me to come in, to get inside, get in off the street. All of this was in Arabic. This was about eight o'clock in the morning and he and his family were sitting down in their garden to have breakfast with gamod and levin and zate and uh olives and bread and they invited me to have breakfast with them while until the shooting stopped and then i could go back out again and carry on they asked who i was and i said didn't give them a name i just said i'm i may have said my first name i said i'm a student i'm up here in in Wasidi, I'm trying to get across to my embassy to establish, let them know where I am in case something happens. They took that all aboard; didn't didn't question it. Um, and about an hour later, I went back out on the streets. And shortly thereafter, as fate would have it, another firefight started out, and I was next to a police station. And I dropped into the police station looking for just to get out of the, the exchange of gunfire. The captain in charge of the police station wasn't sure which side of the competing coup plotters he was on. Fortunately, I had a very small battery-operated radio, the regular broadcast radio with me, which became a very, very valuable uh, piece of equipment because the captain in the police station had no communications whatsoever. Their radio had, I don't know, had broken or whatever, so they used my radio to find out who, which brigadier of which uh, military detachment was swearing allegiance and support to which faction. And so he would know where, where he should be standing. And at one point I noticed that all of a sudden the police station was empty. And I guess they had decided that they were on the wrong side of the fence and they were getting out. And there I was, all by myself, with not quite understanding what was going on. But I decided at that point I probably ought to go home and not try to keep going, getting across town. So I never did get to the embassy. But I learned a great deal about how how uh, absorbed a great deal about how things can happen on the streets in Baghdad in those days when there was no when coups were being gendered by competing military factions, or competing brigadiers, or competing wings of the same party, however you want to call it. It was quite an interesting experience. And this was, this, historically, these were the early years of Republican Iraq, pre-Saddam, But victims of the whims of military strongmen who were conditioned by the aftermath of Sykes-Picot treachery, if you will, and colonialism and attitudes which established the philosophies, if you will, of the modern Iraq or the outlook of the modern Iraqi state towards its neighbors and towards Europe and European powers and, quote, the hidden strings of imperialist interests unquote and all of this led to wars and coups and what i now refer to as secret police on steroids i came across saddam hussein once that i know of and this happened to be uh i was a member of something called the mansoor club which was a a sporting facility in my part of town, and it was also a sort of a, a facility that was that was favored by young and upcoming bath party members. Like to drink at the bar, or play tennis, or pretend to play tennis like the Europeans, whom they didn't like, but nevertheless they wanted to ape them. And I was standing at the bar, or in the bar area, I recall, and there was this rather striking-looking man. Uh, a couple of a couple of persons away from me, and I, as fate had it, I happened to look up, and at about the same time as he looked up, looking in my direction, I was looking in his direction. And we didn't say anything, we didn't speak, but I remember, the I will never forget the look or the non-look of his eyes. They were cold, slate, totally non-expressive almost like a snake's eyes. And it just, it, that impression has never left me. And the fellow that I was with, I asked him later, I said, who was that guest at the bar, the guy with the really piercing eyes? And he said, that's a young Bhatti hood by the name of Saddam, Saddam Tikriti. And then again, at the time it meant nothing to me. Just said, okay, fine, thank you very much, that's his name. Later on, of course, it became a name to conjure with. I learned that many things about Iraq during that period of time. They are tough people. They are, I think, still traumatized historically and nationally by the total sacking of the Abbasid Baghdad Caliphate capital by the Mongols in the 1200s, where it were completely wiped out, flattened the city and destroyed it and killed over 2 million people. I don't think, psychologically, the Iraqi people yet have come through that, that trauma. But, paradoxically, Iraq has the longest sense of time in human history. From the cradle of civilization, Babylon, or what have you. Witness today, the Pope arrived in Baghdad, saying he had always wanted to visit a place, the country where Abraham was born, and that sort of puts the whole thing in in context in in many respects in terms of Iraq's history, Iraq's place, Iraq's trauma, Iraq's, Iraq's psychological issues. I have said, I think I probably said this to you in the years past, that if you have one Iraqi as a friend, that Iraqi will be your closest friend for life. If you have two Iraqi friends, they will probably plot against you. If you have three Iraqi friends, it'll probably be a coup d'etat. If you have four Iraqi friends, it'll be a revolution. So, um, and I think to, to some extent that's perhaps still true. The Iraqis more or less do not trust each other. They will, there are loyalties within tribes, loyalties within families, but once you get outside those uh, immediate personal relationships, loyalties and, and such like tend to dissipate.
0: Sam, these are fascinating stories from your early days in Baghdad. If I may, let me fast forward with you just a little bit. As you know, um, we had no formal presence in um, Iraq for a number of years and had to run most uh, Iraqi operations outside the country. What was that like? What kind of difficulties um, were there in trying to do those kinds of
1: out-of-country operations? Well, the two factors. Uh, I was assigned to Kuwait in the late 60s, and more, more importantly, at the time of, and the aftermath of the 1967 war, <coughs> The U.S. Embassy in Baghdad shut down and the uh, Baghdad station drove out and left. And it in large part, because of my experience in Baghdad, I was uh, put in charge of two or three Iraqi operations uh, handling assets that were, because they were Iraqis, were able to travel from Iraq by car or by plane to Kuwait, which was normal. In those days, arrangements through covert com- covert communications and so on, which had been set up by Baghdad Station before the exfiltration. I was put in touch with these agents, these assets, and uh, I ran two or three operations, handled two or three agents who were, in effect, penetrations of the Iraqi government and the Iraqi military. It was sort of your normal regime political reporting plans and intentions, capabilities, uh, military structures, so on. In the early '70s, Baghdad station, of course, was still closed. Uh, but I had been assigned back to to headquarters and was taken over the Iraq branch in the in the Do. And in many respects, I became part, or uh, the Iraq branch became Baghdad remote. Where some assets were handled from Beirut, some were handled out of London. But in large part, I did a lot of traveling. To Europe to meet Iraqi assets who would come out of Iraq into Europe and I would go over maybe every six weeks or so to meet these people and we had a little limited Covcom set up one-time pads whatnot and radio messages signal meetings and make arrangements and for personal meetings in various Germany, in France, Belgium. The Probably the most important of those assets, as far as I'm concerned, were two. One was a former minister of interior and prime minister for a brief period of time who was upended by Saddam in 1968 and had to flee the country. So that's when Saddam came to power, basically. And um, this fellow ended up going to Europe and in particular to London. But for a period of time, uh, I met him in various places in Germany And then it was decided that we would cut the British in on this, and we ended up running it jointly, not with the assets' knowledge, but the Brits knew that I would come to London and I would meet with this fellow. And then I would meet with the British case officer uh, thereafter, and we would compare notes to make sure that the asset was telling us both the same thing and not playing us off against each other. And unfortunately, the asset was assassinated in London in 1988. But the British case officer with whom I shared this operation ultimately became the chief of station in Beirut at the same time that I was in Beirut in the um, mid-70s. So there's a certain small world to, to Middle Eastern operations, to put it that way. But this enabled me, this experience dealing with these assets enabled me to become perhaps more familiar than I wanted to be with the inner workings of... The Iraqi Ba'ath Party, the Iraqi political system, the Iraqi military uh, personalities of the of Iraqi society and power figures, power centers, whatnot. And but there were some exciting operational activities that I didn't necessarily run, but I sort of oversaw them as Baghdad remote. We had a penetration of the of the Communist Party of Iraq, and we decided to create a Chinese branch of the Communist Party of Iraq, to use it as a way to penetrate aspects of the Bath Party that we couldn't get our hands on because the too many of the Bath Party were pro-Russian. So we thought we'll create something that's Chinese and masked it as as uh, Communist Party of China. Uh, the Communist Party of Iraq reaching out to fellow communists, if you will, within the Ba'ath Party. We tried to kind of a, it was a fun exercise. Uh, there, again, a lot of interesting intel. Perhaps most importantly, the agent who did this for us had a cousin who was a captain in the Iraqi Army Chemical Corps. And through this asset, we were able to build an operation to acquire Russian-made sarin chemical weapon and exfiltrated out of Baghdad into the states. And I think this was the first time that the USG actually got its hands on Russian-manufactured Russian-supplied sarin. This was, I'm going to say, 1974, 73, I don't remember precisely what date it was, but it was a And we even arranged for an officer from headquarters appropriately documented uh, with fake fake papers and what have you, who was Jewish. He was a chemist and he went to Baghdad and met this. We created a cover story for him to be able to meet this particular captain in a, and he was a, a chemical, not a chemical warfare conference, but some kind of a chemical studies conference. And he had documentation that allowed him to meet this fellow. And he brought the sarin stuff out and it was quite a quite an op. I mean, he arranged. I, I'm sorry, he didn't bring it out. He arranged to hand it over to an, an an embassy that brought it out in a diplomatic pouch. But that was our, I think, the U.S. government's first hands-on relationship with what was known in those days as secret sarin. Through monitoring of intercepts, we learned of. A network of Iraqi intelligence operatives in Europe working for the Iraqi intelligence against Iraqi oppositionists who were had, had fled to Europe, various countries in Europe. We tracked one particular fellow from the Shammar tribe of the South who was stealing Mercedes cars and arranging to export them to Iraq for government ministers at great profit to himself personally, but his, um, the people for whom he was working uh, to provide these vehicles began to wonder if he wasn't kiting too much off for himself. And he became in fear of his life and phoned into the embassy in Vienna asking to talk to somebody Uh, about what was going on in Iraq. Fortunately or unfortunately, I had been following the intercept material and this guy's name came out like a a clarion call. I recognized it and realized who he was and he was very much in need. I went to Vienna and spent several days with him debriefing him about the inner workings of uh, Iraqi intelligence networks in in Europe and how they were man- how they were managed and and funded and directed from Baghdad um, didn't want to go back to Iraq of course and it became a resettlement issue didn't want to go to the United States for what I don't remember why he didn't but I think actually I didn't think the U S wanted him so we ended up handing him off to the to the Egyptians and uh, when I later served in Cairo the head of the Egyptian service said to me, I wish the heck you guys hadn't given us him because it was a handling problem. But anyway, it was a fascinating time. But again, all of this, what I'm trying to impart is, even though I was serving in various other uh, stations, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, I kept a, my hand in the Iraqi game, if you will, over those years, and when I left the agency in the 90s, in the 90s, I had hoped to perhaps go back to Iraq or do business in Iraq whatnot, but of course, these were, this was in the heyday of Saddam and you couldn't do very much, and then the, his control of the country was absolute, as you know, and it became just, it, it just was not, not uh, feasible. Uh, and fortunately, however, some of the contacts that I made during that time stayed in contact and I now uh, fortunately enjoy some pretty good personal relationships with people who I did not know necessarily at the time but we knew people in common uh, from, from Iraq and were uh, instrumental in setting me up with uh, Iraqi businessmen and others who are interested in trying to do something to help Iraq now rebuild and redevelop uh, after so many years of incompetence, war, frankly our misguided invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the lack of of any assistance to, of any meaningful well-planned assistance to rebuild Iraq after the invasion. Sam, Um, I understand
0: that you still uh, enjoy both personal professional uh, relationships with uh, a variety of Iraqis what does iraq and baghdad look like today uh, in the aftermath of the war and all that's come since then
1: well you have the sunni shia divide is profoundly deep the distrust of centuries old distrust secular as well as sectarian distrust between these two broad popular groupings is is profound and unfortunately the the sunnis don't trust the shia and the shia don't trust the sunnis and i don't know how ultimately they're going to get over that in in the long term the corruption is you you and i have had a lot of experience in dealing in that part of the world the corruption in iraq is 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 incredible right now vaccines coronavirus vaccines are Available only if, only as gifts, if you will, from an NGO, or uh, the Chinese government might say, we're going to provide 10,000 vaccines to the Ministry of Health or <clears throat> whatnot. There is no program to vaccinate the Iraqi people. Those vaccines that are available are distributed according to political connections and kickbacks. And I have, was having a discussion with a fellow from the Iraqi embassy yesterday who was laying this out in detail to me about how, how sad it was that the virus is widespread. But the chances of, of, of bringing it under control are extremely slim because they can't get vaccines. And when they do get vaccines, the distribution is, is totally corrupt. Uh, if you're a member of the party, or if you're a member of the government, or you're a friend of the minister of health, you're okay. But if you're the common ordinary taxi driver or uh, over sixty-five person with with health issues, forget it. It just it isn't going to happen.
0: What's it like to do uh, business in Iraq right now?
1: Very difficult. If you don't have somebody on the ground in Iraq with whom you are teaming or partnering, it's it's frankly impossible because. Trying to do, number one, trying to do it by Zoom or, or other remote uh, communications it just doesn't work. Eyeball to eyeball conversations, interactions are most important. I always have been as far as the Iraqis are concerned, but even more so now. The security situation is is really abysmal. Investment, unless you are a major American, excuse me, a major corporation, European or American, and you can afford a large security component, it's it's a trick to try to do business because you've, you've got a lot of very talented people who want to do something, but they are stymied by A, corruption, B, a bureaucracy which is impacted by corruption, and C, lack of investment uh capability uh iraqis the iraqi national investment commission has announced has been announcing over the last well i don't know several months that they need 10 million housing units for uh low-cost housing uh, and on all the way up trying to develop projects to provide that housing, to provide building capabilities, construction machinery, uh, specialized building block manufacturing, mobile manufacturing capabilities. Everybody says, oh, this is wonderful, let's do this. Until you try to get the licensing and the permissions and the export import uh, approvals all of which come with a price tag. It's one thing to say, okay, fine, the cost of a license is X, but the cost of the license is X plus Y, because Y has to go to Ibrahim Fulan. Well, that's another matter. It's very, very, very disheartening. And unfortunately, the present government, they've got a lot of talented people. They've got those who want to do something for their country, but their hands are tied by what I've just described, the corruption and what have you. All of the ills which gave rise to ISIS, not, excluding, not including our invasion, but all of the problems that gave rise to ISIS are coming back. Mismanagement, corruption, uh, lousy, terrible uh, inflation, uh, non-availability of goods, lousy housing, no electricity, no water, all of that stuff, none of which need to be there. If the the people in charge would just forget about taking taking care of themselves exclusively and look out more for their own people. But I don't see, I mean, the current prime minister who is a good friend of the US and well thought of here and whose heart is in the right place, I mean, his hands are effectively tied behind him because the Shia Iranian-supported and Iranian-directed Shia militias are cutting him off at every corner. And, I mean, the attacks on on al-Assad base last week and then be- before that at Balad and the efforts against the green zone, they keep on coming. They keep on coming and all it does is tell people, well, we're, we're no better off than, they w- than we were five years ago. And we still don't have electricity. We don't have air conditioning and on and on and on. And it's, 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 it's very, very sad. Very sad. But we keep trying.
0: You know, Sam, it sounds um, all too familiar. Um, like a lot of things really haven't changed that much uh, over this uh, period of sad history.
1: Well, it's true. I think, you know, the... say what, I, mean, I know that the discussion of the 2003, 2003 invasion... There are two sides to every story, but that was so ill-fated and mismanaged. And nobody gave any real thought to what do we do after we have defeated the Iraqis militarily. Okay, we did defeat. We destroyed their their infrastructure. I've had many Iraqis who were thoroughly anti-Saddam, but they were nationalists. We are. You have invaded my country. I don't like Saddam. I wanted him gone, but you have destroyed my country. There are a lot of people, a lot of Iraqis who will pay lip service to America, if you will, because America still represents a a, a source of funding, a source of hydrocarbon development, uh, a source of uh, some military supplies, if you will. But boy, at the ground level, there are not that many people who are pro-American, who are supporting the Americans. And... well-intended, it's very hard for the well-intended to accomplish anything there. Well-intended from our point of view.
0: Sam, I think we're going to have to call it a day for now. It's been a fascinating conversation. I I really appreciate your uh, coming on and spending uh, this time with us and sharing your memories. Sam has a lot more stories to tell. (laughs) Some very, very interesting ones. And so we plan to have him uh, back again. uh, especially his time in Beirut, uh, during a very important uh, history in that country, I know will be um, another great story. Sam, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Jim, for uh, allowing me to ramble on a little bit about my time and experiences with Iraq. Um, Look forward to talking to you again.